Hello, everyone. Today is August 10th, 2022. My guest today is Professor Ashkan Ashrafi. Ashkan is a CEO of Topplenet and professor at San Diego State University. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Ashkan. Uh, thank you, Kurush, for having me. So, what is Topplenet? Uh, well, uh, it's a startup company that uh, my colleagues and I founded uh, actually five years ago. But uh, we have been doing uh, a lot of uh, research uh, on a very important topic in uh, electric power grids. Uh, and, uh, well, basically the problem that we attacked uh, was an unsolved problem in academia for, I would say, more than a decade. And uh, <clears throat> the problem is this. Uh, in power grids, uh, we usually have the, the topology of the grid. And the topology means uh, the connectivity, the way that the grid is connected, and the parameters of the grid. For example, we have a transmission line between uh, a power generator, uh, a nuclear power plant, or another power generator, and uh, and uh, a load somewhere like maybe hundred miles away. Uh, so the cables, the transmission lines, they have parameters like uh, impedances, uh, stuff like that. So we usually know the, the nominal value of the parameters and how the grid is connected. And then based on that, there is uh, uh, an analysis, which is called state estimation. Uh, a computer software, a rather complex computer software, uh, estimates the voltages, the currents, and uh, the other parameters of the grid from the uh, connectivity and the parameters that we have and from the limited measurements that we have uh, uh, over the grid. Uh, so that has been uh, basically uh, the way that the grid uh, can be observed. What, and What is the standard for that software? Well, there are different methods. Uh, basically, uh, they solve uh, a bunch of equations. They're called uh, power balance equations. And uh, these equations are nonlinear, so they have to use uh, numerical methods, for example, newton Raphson method and the other methods to solve these nonlinear problems, uh, equations. <clears throat> Uh, but what we did in Topolinet is the reverse. So, uh, and as I said, that was an academic problem for more than a decade and nobody could solve that. Uh, so we looked at the situation where we have the measurements, like the voltages and powers, uh, uh, and we want to find first the connectivity of the grid and then the parameters of the uh, transmission lines and equipment. So it's basically a reverse problem. Uh, so uh, the reason that uh, 
other groups, research groups in other universities could not solve this problem was that there was a basically a, a missing recipe that we found. Uh, and uh, that is when you solve the equations, the equations are degenerate, which means that you have more unknowns than equations. So basically you have infinite number of solutions, right? But one of the solutions is correct. Uh, so to find that solution, that unique solution, which is correct, there was, a, there was an equation missing and we found that equation. And that equation is based on the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, it's called uh, the principle of maximum entropy. So basically, uh, it tells you that in a system, uh, when you are generating and consuming power, uh, the entropy of the system must be maximum at all time. And uh, in, in a power grid or in general, in, a, in an electric circuit, uh, the, the entropy is maximized when uh, the sum of the uh, uh, admittances are maximized. And so this is what we found. What is the reason we want maximum entropy? It's a law of physics. It's okay. uh, it's a it's the second law of thermodynamics. So it's it's just a law. Yeah, it's a law of physics, like uh, the law of motion or uh, the other law of physics that we have. It's uh, what we have to work with. Exactly, and it's a fact. And uh, the reason that uh, other people uh, miss that is that it's it's a uh, it's kind of an interesting concept because uh, electrical engineers. Uh, do not study thermodynamics in colleges. So, and uh, we study a lot of things, but not thermodynamics. And uh, uh, because I, I, I love physics, uh, I studied thermodynamics and the other things myself a long time ago. And that came to my rescue, basically, uh, figuring out this uh, key to, to solving this problem. But in any case, uh, we solved this problem and we filed for a patent. And it was really interesting because there was no prior art. So the patent office didn't have any problem issuing the patent for us. And it took less than a year, which was uh, very unique because usually uh, patents take years to be published. Uh, What's an art? Uh, prior art. So, uh, so prior art means that nobody else has done it or there was no uh uh there was no even closely uh, or remotely uh, related issue or, or related topic uh to this uh problem so usually uh, let me explain it this way usually patents uh, are like this you uh, you have a patent and then uh, you you discover something you patent it and then uh, you have an incremental improvement, you patent it, another incre incremental improvement, and you patent it, and so on and so forth. And then after, let's say, 10, 20 incremental uh, improvements, uh, you want to have another improvement. You have another improvement, you want to have a patent. Then the previous 20 times uh, is called the prior art. It's a legal term in, uh, in the patent office. Uh, and uh, usually uh, the, the examiner in the patent office, they have to go through all these prior art to make sure 
that what you are offering right now is unique and novel, right? Which is, which takes a long time because uh, they're gonna get back to you, ask question. Okay, what would be the difference between this new approach and these issued patents? Then you have to uh, explain in writing. So it takes a lot of time, uh, back and forth, back and forth. So in our case, there was no prior art. So uh, the examiner uh, didn't have a difficulty to to issue the patent in less than a year. So we we uh, we got the patent in. I think 10 months. So, uh, and now uh, the, that was the easy part. Now the hard part is marketing and uh, trying to uh, basically show the application of this because this is, a, this is an academic uh, problem, right? And nobody cares about uh, the pure academic problem unless you have applications. And the applications are, are uh, actually fantastic, uh, and and it was difficult for us because we are we are academics. Even my colleagues are academics, and we had difficulty to find the applications for this. So, uh, but there are fantastic applications. Let me explain a few. Uh, so, for example, you have a transmission line, and this is uh, close to home. Uh, has a lot of applications in California. Uh, if you remember, in 2018, we had a uh, we had a, probably the biggest wildfire in history of California in uh, Bay Area. It was called uh, Campfire, and it caused uh, 30 billion dollar in damages, and 82 or 83 uh, people died because of that wildfire. And it was caused by a, a, a transmission line, 125 kilowatt transmission line. That was, uh, so the transmission lines, uh, particularly the high voltage transmission lines, uh, are hooked to towers, right? And there are, uh, you know, uh, steel hooks that they hold the, uh, the cables. And one of the hooks was 99 years old and it was rusty and it broke it broke and the transmission line was dangling for some time okay before the wind uh, uh, blew and disconnected the cable and uh, it it created an arc and then wildfire so if we uh, had installed our technology uh, then before uh, the cable was disconnected. We were able to find out that the impedance of the line or the admittance of the line uh, has changed because of dangling. And then uh, we could have prevented this disaster. So by by just changing the the, the configuration of the cables, you can uh, detect that the change in the admittance, and then you don't know uh, the reason of the change, but when there is a change, you can deploy a maintenance uh, crew to figure out what's going on and fix the problem. So uh, that's one of the applications. And because of that, we won a California Energy Commission Concept Award uh, last year. Wow. Uh, yeah, which is a very competitive uh, award. Uh, to, uh, 
200 plus startup companies uh, participated in that. It, 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 uh, they have it every year. And uh, out of 200 plus, I think it was 220 uh, companies, only 28 uh, were awarded. So, uh, and uh, because of uh, the fact that with this technology, we can prevent, we cannot prevent wildfires, but we can prevent wildfires caused by uh, the power grid. Because wildfires, you know, are caused by different things like uh, 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 lightning or even people. They, they can set fire, and <laughs> so we can't yes. we can't do anything about them. But uh, but uh, power grid related uh, malfunctions that can be uh, prevented with this technology. Uh, I'm gonna uh, explain two more applications. There there are. Probably five, six more applications, but I don't want to bother the, the listeners. So uh, before ahead. you continue, sure. just uh, how I understand it, the current standard of power grids is to use a software that takes different, you know, maybe the type of material in the wiring and the distance and how it's coded and different parameters of that the transmission line and then it estimates what the resistance would be across that transmission line Correct. but this topple nets patent would instead of estimating just based off of parameters that the engineer or the user inputs into the software would be reading the resistance <coughs> and then determining what the resistance is instead of assuming the resistance based off of parameters and because it will know the resistance it will know when there's when a wire is dangling which is infinite resistance and then it will be able to cut off all power to that wire yes that's correct uh, okay. Actually, when the uh, when the cable is uh, dangling, it's not infinite resistance uh, because infinite resistance means that the the cable has been cut off completely. But uh, well, there we already have uh, protective measures when a cable is cut off. Uh, we have relays, we have reclosers. They uh, trip immediately when something happens. For for example, a, a cable is cut off, but we have a, a situation kind of in between the normal operation and complete cutoff where the cable is connected, but it's not connected properly. It's not secured properly. For example, it's dangling. So the hook is broken and the cable is dangling, which is very dangerous. You know, think about it. We are talking about 120 kilovolt, 300 kilovolt, 400 kilovolt of, of voltage. And uh, uh, so these situations, uh, our software can actually detect uh, that, okay, it's not completely cut off, but there's something wrong going on there. Uh, but uh, your analysis was completely correct. And uh, we can find a resistance, in the, the, uh, the impedance, by... Uh, uh, the measurements of the voltages and the, the powers. Okay, so we have the voltages, we have the powers, uh, and we can 
uh, find the resistance. Now, the, the, the key is that if you have the measurements of all lines, the current of the line, the voltage, everything, so that problem would be actually very easy to solve. But uh, logistically, it's almost impossible to put a sensor on every line everywhere to, to detect the, uh, or, or to measure the parameters of the grid. So uh, what we do is that we just uh, need four different measurements from each bus. Voltage, phase of the voltage, and active and reactive power injected to the bus. And that's, that's basically the key uh, of this software because it requires minimum measurements. Uh, now, let me, let me uh, tell you another uh, application of this, which is uh, really exciting. And it's kind of related to what uh, you analyzed. Uh, typically, when you uh, find the, uh, the resistance or the impedance of the line, you take uh, parameters like the diameter of the cable, the length of the cable, and, and, and so on and so forth, and you calculate basically the impedance. But the impedance is not a fixed number. It changes with particularly temperature, okay? So when the temperature goes up, uh, we have a, a phenomenon called sagging. So basically the length increases, right? And then the, uh, the conductance changes, okay? So basically when, uh, when the temperature rises, the resistance of the cable increases, okay? Which means you cannot inject more power into the cable, right? Because you have more resistance. On the other hand, when the temperature drops, uh, we have less sagging, the length is decreased, and the resistance goes down, which means you can actually inject more power and uh, get a better efficiency from your grid. And the difference between the two is not uh, small. You're talking about 20, 30% change between them. Now, if you think about it, <clears throat> particularly in the North, uh, uh, North America, Canada, or uh, Northeast, during winter, we have much lower resistance in the cables, which means we can increase the efficiency of the power delivery. So this is called dynamic power flow. So basically you can change your power flow based on the, the impedances of the line. And uh, our technology, because it uh, binds the, the resistance of the cables in real time, in less than a second, we can update the, the operators. Okay, so the resistance has changed. They can actually use uh, another software to, to adjust the power flow. For example, they say that, oh, okay, the resistance of this line has dropped by 20%, so we can inject 20% more power into that. And this is very crucial because uh, the consumption of electricity is going up, you know, EVs, uh, you know, the other uh, electric equipment. And uh, laying down transmission lines is very expensive. And uh, utility companies don't want to do that. So we are offering a solution to the utility companies uh, that they can use and increase the efficiency of uh, the current equipment. 
So this is uh, another uh, application of uh, this technology. And uh, the last application that I want to mention is cybersecurity. So which is very, very important in, uh, in the current situation. So uh, currently, uh, the, the information of the topology of the grid is stored in the computers. And uh, they are updated, you know, not in a matter of seconds, but in a matter of days or even weeks. So for example, if there is a change in the topology somewhere, then uh, they have to manually go there and, and update the, uh, the topology, the information in the, in the computer system. Now, that is very dangerous because hackers can get into the computers and change the, the, the topology information stored in a computer. And because the state estimators rely on that topology, and they see that the topology has changed, but it, it hasn't changed actually in the field, right? So they adjust the power uh, delivery or to power flow uh, to compensate for that, right? Now, if the hackers are smart, they can change the topology in such a way that the software would react, change the power flow, and overflow one part of the grid, okay? And that would create a uh, a, a cascade of blackouts. So, but by knowing the topo the actual topology of the grid in real time, you can update it, and then thwart the uh, the hackers' attack easily. So that's another uh, exciting application of of this uh, technology uh, that can be used for uh, cybersecurity matters. Yes. And <clears throat> that, so what are the four inputs? Uh, we need the, the voltage, the phase of the voltage, active and reactive power at each uh, bus in the, in the power grid. So voltage, phase uh, voltage? React, active and reactive power. Active and reactive power at each bus. Yes. What is the frequency of buses compared to the frequency of transmission lines? They are the same. The, uh, we have a sinusoid, uh, uh, and the frequency of the sinusoid is uh, the same everywhere. It's uh, 50 hertz. Oh, when I say frequency, I don't mean electrical frequency. Oh. I mean how, you know, for every one <clears throat> bus, how many electrical towers would you oh. say there are? Okay, towers are between the buses, right? Uh, so a bus uh, or a bus bar uh, is actually a piece of metal uh, and the the connections are all connected to that. So that's why we call it bus. Uh, it's a bus bar actually. Uh, and uh, so for example, uh, we have a generator and uh, the generator, the, the cables come out of the generator connected to a bus. And from that bus, uh, the electricity is distributed to different locations. And when uh, the electricity gets into the location, for example, we, uh, we have a, well, we used to have a, uh, a power plant in San Onofre. It's turned off right now but suppose that it's it's on then we have miles and miles of uh, transmission lines to other cities for example to san diego to los angeles and the other cities and uh, 
between these buses, when they are transmitting electricity, we have towers. And the towers hold the, uh, uh, the cables, right? Until they reach to the destination. And at the destination, we have another bus. Okay, they're connected to that bus. And then from that bus, we have transformers uh, that uh, would lower the voltage and then distribute it uh, in the city. Several uh, levels of uh, reduction of the voltage. Uh, so uh, basically, this is the structure of the transmission system. Uh, so we have another uh, system, which is called distribution system, low voltage. Uh, distribution among the houses and you know commercial places and stuff like that uh, so as far as i understood about your question the frequency uh you meant how many of these we have buses are there and how many towers yeah. are there oh there are many many towers because they are basically holding the the cables but buses uh well, it depends on. Uh, I think uh, I don't have an accurate number, but for example, in California, I think we have thousands and thousands of buses. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but there are a lot of them. But in terms of towers, I would say uh, you have seen the towers when you're driving and uh, the distance between two adjacent towers is like... I don't know, 100 yards or 200 yards. Now, if you have like a 100 mile uh, stretch of the transmission line, you do the math and how many towers you need. So towers, there, there are many, many towers, uh, maybe millions of them. So inserting, you know, these devices that would be able to read voltage, phase voltage, reactive power, real power, placing them on the buses would be much less expensive than any sort of device that reads input at towers. Yes, correct. Uh, and uh, those devices, which, which are, uh, by the way, they're called phaser measurement units or PMUs, uh, they have been installed in, not, I wouldn't say all utility companies in the US, but the major ones. For example, SDGNE, uh, I think they have installed uh, PMUs all over their grid. Southern California Edison, the same. PG&E, mm, they are way behind. <laughs> Where that, does, where's PG&E located? And, uh, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, is no, uh, they, they cover uh, Bay Area and North California. Okay. Uh, so uh, they are behind. And we saw the result in 2018. Uh, so right now, even even for example in SDGNE or uh, Southern California Edison, we see that uh, uh, the the PMUs are installed everywhere, but still they are uh, shutting down the power when there is uh, Santa Ana wind, which is not the best way to to handle uh, this situation. You know avoid uh, wildfires, sh shutting off completely uh, part of the grid. Uh, and uh, so basically we have the solution. If uh, this software is installed, they can actually monitor the, the health of the grid and 
they don't have to shut down or, or shut off the electricity uh, over a wide area uh, just to to be on the safe side. Would they? So my first question is: Would PMUs, if there were PMUs installed on that trans that ninety nine year old transmission line that began dangling and eventually started? campfire in 2018 if there were pmus on that would would there have been any relay to the operators that this is an a hazard uh well it that depends on how the utility company operates uh if they could actually detect that abnormality in the in the value of the impedance of that line uh you know, it depends on them. They, they can uh, they can uh, make a software or something like that to shut off that particular transmission line, take it off the grid, or if the 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 uh, you know abnormal behavior is not very critical, they can just deploy you know maintenance crew uh, to look at the the tower and see what's going on and. Uh, <clears throat> take some uh you know steps to to remedy that situation so it depends afterwards it depends on this uh, on the utility and how they operate but i i think the best way is just to shut off the, the electricity uh, before something happens and then take a look at it and fix the problem okay <clears throat> but still even with the pmus we do have an issue of not being able to maintain efficiency in high entropy states such as high winds or possibly a cybersecurity attack and with the device what what are these what do you call these do you have a name for the product or your software or the idea is it top net? Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, we, we call it bus ID. Uh, so basically, the identification of the uh, of the structure or the buses. Uh, so uh, we, with bus ID, uh, you can you can monitor the the impedances and with uh, uh, you know the changes and everything. And then after that, uh, you can use you know another algorithm to uh, to determine why you uh, you're observing changes. So the changes uh, can be totally harmless. For example, as I mentioned, during day and night, the temperature changes, and you you see changes in the impedances. So that's just, that's totally normal, right? But if you see a a sudden change, which is beyond the the acceptable boundaries, then there is something wrong. Okay, if if the cable is cut off, that's a different story. So the the so our software can detect that, but there are other uh, uh, protective measures already installed to to deal with that situation. But uh, our our software comes in when uh, the change is significant. But the cable is still there. It's not disconnected. Okay. 
So, which is very important in, in those situations that I explained, like if there is a uh, dangling uh, cable or there's a uh, cyber attack, for example, they change the, the information in the computer, but uh, the, the topology is intact. Uh, so, or, or in dynamic power analysis and dy dynamic power flow, where you want to use these changes for your benefit. Okay. So when the cable, when the wire is still connected, but there has been some sort of disruption in the infrastructure, the security of that wire, the PMUs can't detect that. No, the PMUs just measure the voltages and, and powers. That's it. They, they are not as smart devices. They're just but well, we, you can you can call them sensors. They're just sensing the the change of the voltage, the phase, and the power. And uh, you need to use that information, process it, and extract useful data. Extra, useful, yeah, useful information from it. And this is what uh, Bus ID, our our product, uh, is doing. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, most important features of our product is that. It's based on uh, concrete and accurate mathematics. It's not now. It's it's a, a kind of a trend these days. Uh, you know, we're using machine learning or artificial intelligence to detect this, to detect that. So, our uh, our software uh, does not work based off artificial intelligence or machine learning. It 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 it's based on concrete mathematical equations. And it's completely deterministic. It's not a stochastic. Okay. And that's in regard to how it's reading the power and reading the voltage. Not, not reading the voltage, using the, the readouts to find the, the impedance or the resistance of the cable. Okay. What do you mean the readouts? So these PMUs, they are uh, sensors, right? Basically, and they uh, uh, they measure. Uh, for example, we have a voltage, right? It's a sinusoid, and they they take samples of this sinusoid with a very high frequency, and then they measure the the uh, the amplitude of the sinusoid and the phase of the sinusoid compared to a reference. Okay, and they do it really really fast. Uh, they uh, they parse like sixty measurements, sixty uh, samples at each second. So uh, and uh, also they they uh, they measure power, uh, active and reactive power. So you have very uh, fast measurements, and uh, you have uh, they also uh, measure the frequency and a bunch of other things that we don't use in our software. And there are uh, data streams from these PMUs. And by the way, uh, one of the most important aspects of PMUs is that they are synchronized using uh, GPS. Be because it's very important uh, that when you receive the data uh, in your uh, mission center, the data, each sample, has the correct timestamp. So if you use a traditional uh, communication systems, uh, for example, you have a sensor at 200 miles away or 
even 500 miles away, and another sensor two miles away. And because there is a delay in communications, in any communications, we have delay, we receive the data at different times. So you can't use the data that is received from 200 miles away with, let's say, 20 millisecond delay and data that's uh, received with a delay of, let's say, 100 microseconds at the same time, because they are actually showing events at different times. Okay, so you have to have uh, synchronized data. And this uh, happens in the PMUs because they are all synced using the GPS. So when they send the data, you have timestamp for each sample. And then you can compare it with the timestamps of the uh, of the data you're receiving from other PMUs. And then you can you can sync the data and uh, solve the equations, do the analysis. And that's why PMUs are, are very important. They're not uh, you know simple measuring devices, they are synced through the GPS. Okay. So does each data sample have a timestamp and a GPS location? Uh, correct. Okay. And does bus ID take in the PMU information? Yes. So we, uh, the most important part is the time sy synchronization. Uh, the location is important, you know, to uh, at the end to to draw the map. But in terms of the analysis, uh, timestamps are very important. We, we have to make sure that, uh, for example, the voltage measurement that is coming from you know 500 miles away, uh, and the voltage me measurement that is coming from two miles away, we we have to make sure that these two were measured exactly at the same time. Okay, that makes sense. And you do that, as you said, by verifying the timestamps are the same and the GPS, I mean, you're not worried about the GPS location necessarily, but yeah. the timestamps align and you got them at different times so you know the distance. Uh, no, no, we, we, we have to actually uh, use the data uh, that were sampled exactly at the same time. Now, we have a delay in communication. So, for example, you sample the data, uh, let's say, at uh, exactly 12 o'clock, right? One sample. And one sample exactly at 12 o'clock uh, at another bus, right? But they have to uh, be transmitted through the communication system. So when you receive the data from 500 miles away, Basically, you receive that data after you receive the data from two miles away, right? But it doesn't matter because you have the timestamp. So you, in, in, in the computer, you sync them up. You know that, oh, okay, so I received this uh, sample a minute ago, but I received this sample two minutes ago because of the distance. But I sync them up in, in the computer. So I don't use them when exactly they received. They they have to be adjusted. And because we have the timestamps, we can we can sync them up. And that's why the, the algorithm works. Otherwise, uh, if you don't know the delay or uh, the delay is changing because of the communication systems, uh, you will not be able to use this software. And this this is all technology where there, there was no timestamp or there was no uh, GPS information, uh, which is called uh, SCADA, which is an old fashioned uh, system that uh, 
has been used widely in uh, utility companies, uh, but they don't have these timestamps accurately because they're not synced. Now with PMUs, uh, we have this uh, information and uh, a lot of people actually are trying to use the PMU data to uh, extract useful information from the grid. Uh, and uh, they're actually doing a great job in different aspects, you know, finding this, this different aspects of the grid. For example, one very important uh, piece of information that the PMUs provide is the frequency of the sinusoids, which is, uh, uh, you know, we, we always think, that, okay, it's 50 hertz or 60 hertz in Europe, but it, the frequency changes. The change is not significant, so, for example, it changes between 49.8 to 50.1, something like that. But if the frequency deviation is more than that, then there is a problem with the power grid. It's a synchronization of the generator or, uh, or stuff like that. So, uh, PMUs generate a lot of data useful for different applications. So... Bus ID works in collaboration with PMUs to, you know, that data all exists, the PMU data with the timestamp and the GPS location and the electrical specifications. And Bus ID works in collaboration with all the PMUs within the grid it's installed in to synchronize their data to be able to get a fully comprehensive picture Correct. of the grid. And then using that picture, another tool can be used to make adjustments based off of very sharp changes in frequency or some sort of specification that seems malicious or maybe not malicious, but dangerous that's correct uh so that that would be actually the next step in in our development uh uh to because when you see the changes in the resistance and impedances you don't know the cause of those changes some of them are obvious for example uh between day and night the, the temperature changes and you have some kind of a the oscillation uh that is synced with day and night so you know that okay so this is because of the change of the temperature but there are other things there might be uh things that we don't know uh well we have to deploy this and uh and that's why we are actually uh uh working uh with some utility companies to do pilot projects to see uh what we can uh extract from this information okay uh and uh it, it we have a lot of work uh, ahead of us but that would be the exciting part of this because uh when you get the information when you see the changes uh finding out the root cause of these changes is is a big challenge that we need to attack and uh, we we need to use other algorithms or other methods to uh to distinguish between the root causes what do you mean by different algorithms? So, uh, so for example, uh, suppose that you have a, a transmission line and you're monitoring the, the resistance or the impedance of the line, right? And uh, throughout, let's say, uh, a few days, 
you see changes, right? Some of the changes are obvious, as I said, between temperature, day and night. So you see some kind of oscillations. But you also see some other changes that you don't know the cause of the changes, right? Uh, it might be, <clears throat> and, and they differ in, in different uh, locations of the grid. So maybe there is a loose connection <clears throat> that causes uh, these changes. Maybe uh, there is a wind blowing at some, uh, you know, just uh, uh, think about the big picture. We have, let's say, the state of California. Uh, we have, let's, for the sake of the argument, let's say that we have 5,000 buses and, I don't know, a million miles of, uh, cables, which is not, you know, I'm not actually uh, uh, trying to uh, exaggerate the situation. It's something like that. And uh, at each location, you have different uh, phenomena going on. Wind, temperature, and sabotage. You never know. So you are detecting the data. You, you are actually seeing the changes, but you don't know why you see the changes. Right, so this is a big challenge, actually, and this is where I think uh, machine learning would be really helpful to uh, uh, to uh, teach the machine learning for different scenarios and stuff like that. It's kind of a pattern pattern recognition uh, analysis and those sort of things. I don't know exactly because we haven't done it. Uh, we have to actually go to the field, uh, gather the data, and then try to analyze the data and find the root causes so that's that's why i said that this is just a beginning basically okay that makes sense and earlier when you said that your technology isn't based on machine learning you meant the reading of the specifications and determining the actual outputs that is all based on physics electrical physics but as you know and that's what bus id is currently and moving forward as this you know as that tool is deployed in the field as topplenet gains more data then that is when artificial intelligence machine learning can be a tool that topplenet uses to work with that data and provide users even more useful information that's correct okay that's very exciting good luck yeah thank you yeah it's uh it's 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 the beginning of the journey and uh i'm really excited about it because this is very important uh the health of the grid is very important and it, it's a national security and uh unfortunately right now uh the electric grid in uh, in the United States overall it's not in a good shape in terms of monitoring and maintenance and, and stuff like that and uh, even even cybersecurity even even uh, sabotage uh, it's very prone to uh, to sabotage and and uh, we need to do something about it this is very important yes and you know in case people I'm not sure if you know professor but have you heard of the 2015 Ukrainian Christmas blackout? No. 
uh, Russia executed a cyber attack on Christmas Day in 2015 and blacked out a section of Ukraine. And it, it n- devastated the area for a short time. And it was pretty serious. People couldn't get cash out of their banks. People couldn't make transactions. Credit cards were useless. Um, it's a, it's very possible and it's very serious. Yes. Uh, well, I didn't hear about that, uh, but that proves my point that it's very important to to uh, to avert that kind of uh, attack. And I know that uh, I think it was last year or a year before there was a cyber attack in one of the uh, power plants uh, somewhere in the northeast in the United States. Uh, they uh, inf- infiltrated into the computer system, but they didn't do anything. Uh, maybe they were just showing that they they could do that. Uh, but we were lucky that they didn't do anything. Uh, but it shows that uh, the, the system is vulnerable. And uh, we need to do... Uh, there was a 60-minute program uh, some time ago. They showed that uh, you can completely... Uh, shut down the entire U.S. grid by taking out like nine transformers only, which was really scary. What is the reason only nine transformers can be attacked and cut shut off the entire grid? Uh, because you can by by uh, actually removing one transformer. Uh, and why transformers? Because transformers are very critical, particularly high voltage transformers. They are big, and uh, and uh, they basically connect different buses to each other, lowering the voltage or even increasing the voltage from the power generator to the transmission line. So, <clears throat> if you take out one of them, the software. Uh, I'm not an expert in in that area, so I'm just. Uh, kind of uh, explaining what I know. Uh, the system, the software, has to reroute power because when you cut off uh, one transmission line or a transformer, uh, they have to reroute the power from other power plants or other uh, sections of the grid. And then if if another transformer is removed from the grid, then this rerouting becomes really uh, erratic and it it could create a cascade of blackouts and they did the analysis at the department of energy and they found out that you know in order to create a a massive uh, blackout you need to just remove nine transformers from the grid <clears throat> and uh, there was there was actually an attack in uh, in the bay area uh, somebody went into the uh, substation and started shooting at, at the transformer. With, we the were, with the Yeah, with the machine gun. And wow. we, uh, we were lucky that somebody was there for some reason because it's in the remote area. Nobody lives close by. And they called the police and the police came and he, the, the attacker couldn't finish his job, fortunately. Uh, but, but that's a problem because most of these places are remote. There is no security, there is just a fence and they can easily get into the uh, substation by cutting the fence. And 
um, so and if they if they want to you know put police or guards it requires a huge budget because we have many of these substations uh, in the United States so uh, so being able to monitor everything uh, from a remote area uh, would be really helpful see okay uh, if somebody starts shooting at the transformer then you you immediately see if if the utility company uses our software, the bus ID. They they can immediately see the changes in the uh, impedance of the transformer. Oh, okay, something is going on. So <clears throat> they can call the police, or or you know they can put camera and then see what's going on. There are yes. different. They can uh, prevent that. Yes, it, and then bus ID could be you know in addition to cameras another layer of security you want we want layers of security to technology not just one solution exactly yeah especially uh you know we are talking about uh, this is something really uh interesting for uh for the public that uh, electric power grid is the largest system that mankind has ever built wow if you think about it you know we have uh millions of miles of uh cables we have uh, huge transformers and these are all connected to each other and be even before we had internet uh and you know that kind of connectivity that we have right now through computers we had the uh, the power grid which was the biggest network ever built okay did the Tower grid, the power grid, also work in conjunction with the landline grid, or you're you're talking about the telephone landline? Yes. No, they're separate. Okay. Uh, yeah, the power grid uh, uh, basically provides electricity. Uh, the landline is a, is a separate uh, grid. Uh, but it, the, uh, the telephone landline, which is nowadays is kind of <laughs> useless. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's it it's not that critical because what if you know thinking about twenty years ago, what if your landline is cut off? I mean, you you can't call anyone, which is not a big deal. But if you don't have electricity, even twenty years ago, you know, think about it: hospitals, you know, police stations uh if they don't have power then could be a lot of disruptions or or you know you remember it in 1970s there was a huge blackout in northeast and uh the next day when uh uh you know there was light they saw a lot of looting and you know damages that uh you know people did to the uh, businesses so uh that that's the uh, that's a consequence of not having like and we are so dependent to electricity these days i mean you can't even imagine living without electricity for for a day if how most people would have a tough time cooking or even <laughs> you know finding food restaurants would be have a tough time cooking too yeah exactly and then there are many people uh you know who have uh 
medical devices attached to them, like the oxygen uh, masks or stuff like that. They they are at home. I'm not talking about people uh, hospitalized, and they depend on electricity. And actually, if uh, last year I think it was uh, Santa Ana winds in Southern California, this SDGNE or Southern California Edison, they cut off electricity uh, to avoid wildfires. And one person died because uh, she was using uh, oxygen masks. Uh, she had some kind of uh, respiratory problem. And because of lack of electricity, the, the device didn't work and she died. So uh, these things you know, are, are, are very important. Uh, electricity, the, the security of the electric grid is very important. Yes, it is very important. And just as a review, the original, so I think a lot of people are familiar with SCADA and yes. how it's an industrial system. SCADA didn't implement GPS or timestamps within its data. They have kind of timestamp, but the timestamps are not synchronized. Okay. So then PMU was able to create a technology of synchronized timestamps electrical spec specifications and gps location yes because of the gps uh because SCADA was developed way before the gps era and they didn't have that luxury uh, okay emus we we have the gps uh and it's fairly uh, relatively cheap so that's why uh uh they they are able to synchronize data and that's very important in, in our technology. Yes. And so PMUs right now are probably the most advanced sense or the standard of sensor technology for reading grid data available today. I wouldn't say standard uh, because there are many utility companies, smaller utility companies. Uh, they still don't have a lot of PMUs installed in their grids because uh, well, 10 years ago, PMUs were really expensive. Now the price has gone down dramatically, but still installation of PMUs is not easy, especially in the high voltage uh, grids, because, uh, well, you have to get there and install the device at the like 400 kilovolt uh, transmission line. So they need to do a lot of uh, preparations for that. Uh, but uh, utility companies that are laying down new transmission lines, they can easily install PMUs without any difficulty because the, the cables are not, uh, they don't have electricity yet, so they can just integrate it into their installations. Uh, now, we, we're going to uh, do a pilot project with a utility company in, uh, uh, and uh, they are actually laying down a lot of transmission lines. And that's why they are interested in our technology. Uh, so hopefully we're gonna start uh, the project, uh, hopefully next week, actually. Uh, so, and that's why they are very interested in this technology because they can, while they are laying down the transmission lines, can easily install PMUs with no difficulty and then use them. And, and they, they have uh, another problem, actually. They, uh, and that's why they are interested in this technology. They have uh, overgrowth of uh, trees, the tropical country. And they, they told us that 
you know, they, they cut the trees after six months, they grow back. So, so that's why they have to, they need to have kind of monitoring system uh, to detect this overgrowth. Well, when, when the tree touches a transmission line, it's uh, basically, uh, there are protections. It, it's like a short circuit, right? So they have protections. But when they are getting close to transmission lines, the resistance or the impedance of the line changes, right? Because we're talking about like 400 kilovolt, and then uh, the tree is like two yards away from the, there is a, a, a leakage current between the, the line and the tree. And that will uh, affect the, the resistance of the line. So that's why they are interested in this. The, I don't think they have a wildfire problem. Maybe they do, I don't know, but they, they told us that uh, the tree overgrowth, the vegetation uh, management basically is the reason. But they probably also <coughs> don't have as close, as even close to as big of a grid as say California. Yeah, absolutely. But they are actually growing. Uh, they are, they, they told me that by 2023, uh, they're going to have like an, uh, another 2000 kilometers of transmission lines. Okay. And, 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 and transmission lines, high voltage transmission lines. So 2000 kilometers is a lot actually, uh, when you think about it, it's not just low voltage, uh, cables that you, connect uh, from the transformer at uh, uh, at a substation to your house. That's easy. Uh, but laying down 400 kilovolt transmission line, it's a huge task. So uh, laying down 2,000 kilometers is even a, a gigantic task. What's the biggest difference in laying down a high voltage line compared to a low voltage line? <laughs> So in a high voltage line, first of all, uh, they're called overhead lines. So they have to be uh, at elevation uh, to avoid uh, arcs and sparks because, you know, 400 kilovolt is, is a huge voltage. And they have to, uh, you know, if uh, I'm sure you have seen the towers when you're driving between cities. And those towers uh, are very secure uh, structures. So they have to lay foundation for them. Uh, if you get close to one of them, you see a big uh, concrete at the base of each leg. So they have to lay foundation and the structure of the of the tower. And even when the, uh, they put the cables, uh, the cables should be separated from each other. Otherwise, they can create sparks and arc between themselves. So so it's every tower. Uh, uh, is a structure and it's not easy to to develop uh, to uh, to build. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they say that for it costs two million dollars for each mile of uh, transmission line when you want to lay lay down transmission two two million dollars per mile. High voltage or high vo low? Okay, high voltage. So so now think about it. You want to connect two cities that are 200 miles away from each other. You do the math. So it's... <laughs> $400 million? Yes. Okay. So it's expensive. 
so when you're laying down 2000 kilometers so wow yes very expensive yeah we're talking about billions of dollars of in investment wow and that i mean that makes sense if they're investing that much into their their trans their power grid infrastructure that they want their assets to be as secure as possible exactly so uh so that's why our technology is probably more attractive to uh, developing countries than the us because in the us we have the transmission lines and they are installing pmus but uh uh because of the difficulty of the installation of pmus on the grid that it's already working many utility companies they don't see the urgency of this and they and they calculate the the cost and say oh okay you know what maybe later so uh um, and, and did, would you say pg&e by not having pmus in their system made a, the wrong dis decision and it cost yes. the whole bay area yes uh and that was uh well that wasn't because of not having pmus uh they actually they knew the problem uh and as i said there was a, a steel hook uh, 99 years old yes <laughs> and they were supposed to replace them but because of mismanagement and you know other issues i mean budgets they uh, they ignored it and the disaster happened and you can you can read uh, a lot about the campfire because uh, the former ceo of pgne was prosecuted and he was actually found guilty uh, a few months ago i think it was march if i'm not mistaken Wow. And he was personally, uh, he was lucky that he didn't go to jail, but uh, uh, he was fined like a few million dollars for personal damage. Now, I'm not talking about $30 billion damages that the PG&E uh, had to compensate. Uh, that was kind of a personal criminal prosecution of the CEO. And uh, as I said, he was lucky that he didn't go to jail, <laughs> but uh, but that's the uh, that's the result of negligence. Yes, it's very serious, and you know a lot of people don't realize how serious it is until something terrible has happened. Yeah, and well, that's human nature. You can you can change that, mm. uh, but. Uh, but it's very important. Uh, power grid is very important, and securing power grid is very important. But unfortunately, utility companies are very uh, slow in accepting for for right reason. I'm not blaming them, because power grid is is a system that you can't just change. It's not like a your operating system that you update it, you know, easily in thirty seconds. Uh, it's very difficult to allocate budget and uh you know do the the maintenance it's extremely difficult and for for uh for an understandable reason they don't want to change it uh you know ch actually apply dramatic change 
they want to make sure that okay this change is reasonable uh because think about it they are providing electricity to the public and this is not an easy task so their their reluctance to accept new technologies is totally understandable what's the reason it's understandable as i said because they're providing electricity to public and when the, when somebody comes in and says like us okay we have a new technology which ma makes your life much easier they would take it with a grain of salt say okay so you, you need to really prove it before we spend money and resources and start changing the grid because if we change the grid right now to the to the specifications that you like what if your system doesn't work and then we're gonna have blackouts and stuff like that so so for for a, for a right reason they are uh very conservative okay that makes sense so basically uh, new technology has to prove itself that it is really important and it is necessary and it will not cause disruptions to the flow of electricity. Hopefully bus ID can do that in with the project. Yes, that's that's our hope. So one thing that you mentioned at the very beginning and this, you know, has to do with Talent but more so um, also related to your background as an educator. So traditionally you have been an educator and you mentioned you started ToppleNet five years ago in 2017, and your partners at ToppleNet are also educators. What have you learned in this experience after having the background as a professor in universities and then going into applying your knowledge along with bringing in, you know, developing technologies which mostly revolve around software? within you know your education and then deploying that into some sort of profitable company well that's a very good question uh well in academia when you are doing research and you are attacking a problem uh oftentimes you forget whether this problem, if you solve it, uh, would be applicable to to some real world systems, or if if this technology can improve lives, okay. Uh, so this is something that is, I think, it's kind of lost in academia. Particularly, you know, I'm talking about engineering. Academia is very big, uh, and we, we do a lot of research. You know, we we have graduate students, we have uh, PhD students, we publish papers. But I have realized that uh, you know many of these papers that we publish in prestigious journals, they're useless basically, <laughs> and I mean in in terms of uh, their applications. <clears throat> uh and uh it's not like that okay so i have published a, 
paper, I discovered something, and then uh, this would be applicable in, in real life. No, most of the time it's not. And uh, this is kind of unfortunate uh, because I think that there should be a closer connection between academia in engineering and the real world applications, right? So we have uh, different disciplines. They do theoretical work. For example, we have pure mathematics. They, they prove a theorem. It might not be useful, maybe useful in the next 100 years. We don't know. But that's their job. I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. That's very good, actually. Uh, but in engineering, my belief is that whatever you do should actually apply in real life and, uh, and make lives better in the world. That's, that's the purpose of an engineer, right? Not, not a pure mathematician or a physicist or a theoretical physicist. They want to decode the, the, the law of nature, which is very good. Uh, but engineers, we are not, our purpose is not to decode the law of nature. Our purpose is to use the, uh, the information that we have, the, the mathematics, the physics that uh, scientists uh, have discovered. The second law of thermodynamics. Exactly, the second law of thermodynamics, and use them in, in an application. So we, we engineers, we build circuits, we build uh, buildings, right? And that, that's the purpose of an engineer. And unfortunately, I see a huge disconnect uh, between uh, the way that uh, academics in engineering departments think. And I'm not saying everyone is like that, but this is kind of a general trend. Uh, and the, the main focus in academia right now is to, okay, you need to get a grant and you need to publish. And uh, it doesn't matter whether this publication is going to be useful someday or not, but at least it's useful for your promotion and tenure. Uh, and I think they, I don't know how, I, I have thought about it a lot, but I don't know how we can close this gap between uh, academia and industry. <clears throat> It's a huge problem, and um, I'm a UCSD graduate with a BS in electrical engineering, and when I went into industry, there's a um, actually a kind of stigma in the San Diego area that, that engineers from SDSU are better right out of college than engineers out of UCSD because the work is so theoretical, they haven't had as much applicable experience and it it hurts you know in the short term eventually you know you gain that experience through you know your profession and working but in the short term it does i think hurt the student yeah i, I i'm aware of that stigma uh <laughs> and uh and this is unfortunate uh well at sdsu uh we have a, a pretty good uh, senior design, uh, basically program. structured program. Well, it's not a program; it's a structured part of the. Uh, I don't know about UCSD. I'm sure that you you also have some kind of uh, uh, senior design, but but yes. here at SDSU, uh, we focus more on actually building something. 
So students build some, they don't do simulations or stuff like that. They, they build a, a circuit or something that uh, is uh, applicable to some real problem. And uh, companies are actually uh, donating money uh, to different student groups. Not a lot of money, maybe $3,000, $4,000 for each project. And they, they, they also learn how to use that money wisely, so, which is very important. Uh, in, in engineering, that's a huge, that matters a lot. Yeah, and that, that's another thing that is missing in engineering programs. I don't know about UCSD, but we don't have it. Uh, uh, engineering economics, which, which, which is very important because at the end of the day, if you build something uh, which no, nobody would buy because it's expensive, it's useless, right? So it's very important to for students to learn economics as well as the technical side. So, uh, and this is a challenge uh, because academia is geared more toward research and research and research, and getting grants from the federal government and uh, and they less and less focused on, you know, the actual education of the uh, of the future engineers. And as you said, you know, you, you graduate, you go to work after three, four years, you know, you gain experience and you will do fine. But uh, we can save that two, three years uh, in college so that when you get out of the college, you know, you, you don't have to wait another two, three years to, to gain the experience. So, but, you know, this is something that uh, requires strategic thinking and... Uh, uh, concerted effort by everyone in academia and industry, uh, which I don't see it's happening in the near future. No. What's the reason you say that? Uh, because, uh, as I said, in academia, uh, the professors <clears throat> are under a lot of pressure, particularly pr probationary professors who are up for tenure and promotion. They are uh, in a lot of pressure to get grants, and unfortunately, uh, the the metric to measure their performance <coughs> is not based on the quality of the work. It's based on how much money you have gotten from the grants previously. No, no, no. During during, uh, for example, oh, okay. uh, yeah, they I they understand. hire a professor, right? And the professor has six years uh, to become tenure, right? If now that there are uh, rules, okay, so you need to teach, you need to do research, you need to publish papers, and you need to get grants. Uh, it wasn't like that like 10, 20 years ago. Now it's written, even officially written in the policies, that you need to have like an average of 100 thousand dollars in grants during the past six years otherwise you're not going to get tenure so and, and so the professors are under a lot of pressure to generate money for universities okay and to do so they have to actually and it happened a lot you have to go outside your area because your area is not attractive anymore so there is not a lot of money in that so you need to go outside your area because the money is there so you have you have to write a lot of proposals to government agencies nsf doe uh, uh, dod 
to get some grants. And usually the success rate is like less than 5%. So you need to submit 20 proposals. And if you are lucky, one of them would be funded. So, so that's why the focus of professors are not on educating students. They are on getting grants and doing research. And uh, they have realized this, so they are actually changing the structure a little bit to hire uh, uh, pra uh, professor of practices. They, they came up with this name. Who are at UCSD? They called it a lecturer. No, we have a lecture, but professor of practice is a little bit higher than a lecturer, where there is a, <clears throat> a little bit more job security into that. The lecture is like, a, you know, you, you, you teach a course in one semester, next semester, there's no guarantee that you, you teach another course. But a professor of practice is kind of a, like a tenure uh, or tenure track, but uh, they're not going to focus on research. They're going to focus only on teaching and educating students. So they realize that uh, there is a problem and they are trying to solve that problem using this new model, which is good. Um, I don't know how uh, it'll work out, but at least it's a uh, it's a move towards a positive direction to to close this gap. So they don't have to actually worry about oh okay bringing money into the university and uh, you know they have to do research they have to publish papers they don't have to worry about those things. Uh, their performance will be judged by their teaching. Uh, uh, record okay that that sounds like a good new practice new model um it it's important both of them you know for institutions to be able to be well funded to continue providing high quality education with high quality professors but then also to actually educate students who are really there for less than maybe say a graduate student who doesn't you know a graduate student to that researcher might be you know there might be a good relationship mutually beneficial but for the undergraduate student who wants to be four years get out that sounds like a model that might help them yes uh, one of the problems uh, in research universities like uh, UCSD, uh, well, SDSU is also a research university, but UCSD is very extensive, is that because professors are so busy with writing proposals and do, you know doing research, advising PhD students, they don't have time to uh, to actually go to the classroom and teach. And I have heard that many times they they send their TAs or PhD students to the classroom you know, to, to cover uh, the lectures. And uh, this, is, this is not good. Uh, and I don't blame them because, you know, they're so busy with, with research and sometimes uh, they, they forget uh, uh, to, you know, even prepare for a classroom or they don't even have time to prepare for the classroom. It's very difficult to, uh, to teach two courses per semester at the same time having you know, 10 PhD students and, you know, 15 master's students and writing uh, two proposals per month. It's, it's, it's a daunting task. Uh, so, so that's why this model, I really hope that it'll work, so that we have professors who are 100% dedicated to teaching and they don't have to worry about research. So that would be, as you said, that would be very helpful to undergrad students who don't want to go to grad school and 
they want to go to the, the, uh, the industry immediately after their graduation. Yes. Well, Professor Ashrafi, are there any last words about what we've spoken about, be that TopleNet or <clears throat> applying engineering practices into useful context that you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, no, I think we, we pretty much covered uh, everything. Uh, probably we didn't solve all problems in the world, but <laughs> well, that, was a, that was a very nice chat. And uh, I really appreciate inviting me into this uh, podcast. And uh, I don't have anything else to add. Great. I appreciate you taking the time as well. My guest, my guest today has been Professor Ashrafi. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. Oh.